Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. All right, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Mark 3, if you have a Bible app with you, you do whatever we call turning to the pages in the Bible app <laughs> these days. Uh, thumb through that, scroll through that, I don't know. And uh, we'll be looking at a section that I'm just going to give a little bit of a preview of as we help you thinking about what's going on. A lot of times in the Gospels, you feel like there's somebody with a microphone who is standing there and interviewing Jesus or just watching one little scene. Uh, but we had an experience that helped me think about this passage a little bit. Uh, when we were, over Christmas, we were moving my daughter from Raleigh to Greenville, South Carolina. And while we were in Raleigh, she had this one little la- this lake that she loved to go through. And it was so cold up there that the lake was frozen. It was really fantastic. So we are throwing ice on there and listening to it echo across the frozen uh, the lake. And uh, at one point, a guy showed up with a drone. And, uh, you know, he's just kind of flying it around, and he'd send it way out on the lake and come back. And it's clear he had some sort of a video camera on it. So every once in a while, he'd come and hover over us, and I felt like I wanted to be like King Kong and swat it out of the sky. Just get that thing away. But, you know, he's getting a close-up of us and, like, checking people out and then flying off and going to the far side and zooming it back around, going through uh, like there was an archway. He would zoom to the archway. And as I was reading this passage this week, I had the sense that's a little bit what Mark is doing as we go through here. This passage is uh, he's not sitting with the microphone and having, watching as Jesus has one conversation with one person. Uh, he is giving us the broad overview, the lay of the land, and he'll zoom in for just a little bit on a conversation, but then zoom right back out and give us the big picture of what's taking place. And uh, there's actually a lot taking place. So we're going to read this morning uh, Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 7. So if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand as we read God's word in Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. A great great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed so many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, 
He is possessed by Beelzebul, that is the devil, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. It's good. It's good. That was good. I feel like I need to lip sync when that happens. So Is Stephen still reading that? Stephen's got, his voice got deeper. Alexa. No, I don't. It's good. You're, sorry. So, are, they, is the, are the words up here? There we go. Okay, we're good. Uh, where was I? Okay. Satan and Satan's phone. Okay, so we're good. We're good. No, that's Michael's phone. We're good. We're good. Thank you. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and Standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's very word. He's given it to us because he loves us and every word is true. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we look at this this morning. There's truly a lot in this passage. There's, there are lifetimes of study in this passage. I'm just zooming around the landscape and looking at everything you were doing. We have about 30 minutes to open this up and look at it. So we pray that you would direct us and guide us that you would show us things uh, that we might not have seen otherwise, that we may worship and see you aright. We pray, Lord, that you would bless our time, as we've talked about, that you would have the conversation underneath the conversation, that you would be speaking to each of our souls about the things that we need to come to terms with in our lives, about who you are and what it means for us. So would you bless us, and would you bless me? My, uh, my flesh is weak. My heart is weak, my mind is weak, but your word is strong and your spirit is strong. And so I pray that you would be pleased by your spirit to enable us to see things. Uh, I pray that you would, by your spirit, enable me to say things that would hold forth Jesus. Bless us and be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, please have a seat. You're good. It was good. Okay. okay. The scene as we come into this is pandemonium. Chapter 3, verse 8 there's a huge crowd following and surrounding Jesus because of all that he'd been doing. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says that the huge crowd is, uh, he says, for he, he, he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him 
to touch him. So all these people with diseases came around Jesus and were trying to touch him. And we get a little more insight into this in, chapter, in Luke chapter 6, verse 19, which says, And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So people were being healed just by touching Jesus, and power was coming out from him to heal them all. So they're just trying to get to Jesus here, right? They're desperate. And you can understand that because there are no doctor's offices. There's no CVS. There's no Pepto-Bismol. There are no, uh, there's no ibuprofen. There are no med schools, dentists, no urologists, none of it. And your body just hurt. Your ankles hurt. Your back hurt. Your head hurt. Your stomach hurt. And not only that, if you may have a person who's, intense, who's in intense pain and you're doing everything you can to help them get to Jesus, just take one more step. We're going to get there. Come with me. And you want your family member, the person you love, to be there to touch Jesus and to be healed. Can you imagine the desperation to get to Jesus? He tells us here that people came from all over the region. And they, didn't, they wouldn't just pop in the car and drive over for the day. They had to go on a pilgrimage to get to Jesus. Can you imagine how desperate these folks were? It would be like those images of relief workers trying to go to uh, get medicine and food in an area where there was none. And, you know, the relief workers are throwing these parcels out, and they're just holding out their hands, wanting to catch the next parcel that might fix the problem that we're facing. And so people are running desperately uh, to Jesus to try to get, him, get help from him. So how many people do you think were there? By some estimates, there are some commentaries who say they estimate that there were thousands of people here. There were enough that it says that Jesus had a boat ready just in case the people started pressing in upon him and he was crushed. You remember the thing that happened in Seoul, Korea this past year where there's the press of people and people suffocated? There's that many people there who are scrambling and just trying to press in and touch Jesus at this point. Jesus, it tells us in verse 20, that Jesus couldn't get away from the crowds so that he would have an opportunity to eat. So there's just this press of people all the time. So desperate people in their desperation came to Jesus because they needed healing. And there were other people who were here who were watching this, and they knew that something truly amazing was happening in their day. Everyone could see the miracles that Jesus was doing no one could deny that something big was happening. And so everyone had to process it. They had to form some sort of an opinion about it. They had to decide what to do and how to respond. You couldn't be neutral because everybody knew something amazing is going on and none of us can escape this at all. The world was changing right in front of them. So people had to process what they were seeing and frankly, we all do. But they couldn't wrap their minds around it. And so like we do, they took what they saw of Jesus and they put him into categories that their minds and their hearts had pre-established. They had preconceived ideas, and they would pigeonhole Jesus into those ideas. Um, and as we go through the passage, and maybe as we read through it a while ago, you could see, hear echoes of C.S. Lewis's The Great Trilemma. It's people saying he's either a liar or a lunatic or a lord. And you're going to hear that kind of coming through as we're talking, but we're going to talk about a little bit more even than that. So what... What did people think about Jesus? What do we think about Jesus? A.W. Tozer says this about the answer to that question. What do we think about Jesus? He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God 
is the most important thing about us. And I would add the name Jesus. Whatever comes into our minds when we hear the name Jesus, that's the most important thing about us. And Blaise Pascal said this. He said, Not only do we not know God except through Jesus Christ, we do not even know ourselves except through Jesus Christ. Because what you find is that Jesus becomes a litmus test for our souls. It reveals what's going on inside of us, the way we pigeonhole him, the way that we try to put him into some sort of a camp. So talking about the false teachers in in another passage of Scripture, Jesus says by the fruit of the false teachers, you'll recognize them as false teachers. But it's also true of him as you'll recognize the Messiah, you will recognize Jesus by his fruit. And the way that you respond to Jesus and his works also reveals you. You'll recognize yourself by Jesus' fruit. I mean, it, doesn't, it won't change Jesus one bit, but it will reveal you. So, let's step into this a little bit. Jesus, in this passage, was just being the king, the Christ, the redeemer, sent from heaven to redeem God's people and to bring about the healing and peace of heaven with him. He wasn't, po- he wasn't politicking for power. He didn't need it. He already has it. He wasn't trying to take what the Pharisees had. He didn't want it. It was too small. Instead, he stepped into the broken world as its only hope and more than meets our needs. And how people respond to him says more about them than it does about him. And so we come to the scribes first. Uh, What do we see from the scribes? The scribes came in seeing what they expected to see, pigeonholing Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, the devil, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now these were were Jerusalem scribes. These weren't Wildwood scribes. These were the cream of the crop scribes. These were the people that you would bring in that really knew everything. So these these are scribes from the big city. And so they came in with some authority that other people didn't have. And as soon as they step in, and, you know, and, it, and it had, uh, we've already talked about this, as the Pharisees and the, the scribes and the Herodians were already looking for a way to destroy Jesus. So let's call in the people from the big city to kind of take a look at this. And their first response is, uh, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Now, maybe at some level, they were trying to be logical here because none of the scribes' associates could do anything like Jesus was doing, not even close. And so Jesus is on a completely different level. And so they realize he's a, he's, he is somehow accessing power that we don't have. And the only way that you could do that, because our guys are the godly people, the only way he could access power we didn't have would be if he's accessing a dirty power, if he's accessing the power of the devil to drive out demons this way. Jesus is t- it's tapping into that. So the only way he could have that kind of authority over demonic things is if he was tapping into de- 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 uh, demonic power. But that says a lot about the faulty logic of their hearts, that they would look at these good things that were taking place and saying, this is a problem, that Jesus is doing these good things for the sake of these other people. So Jesus addresses their accusation in chapter 3, verse 23 to 25, with a logic by saying that Satan would never drive himself out of his own territory. An army would not attack territory that it already controls. You'd be fighting against yourself. So Jesus says that doesn't make any sense. 
And then he changes it a little bit in 327, and he says that he is the one who bound the strong man, the strong man being Satan, and Jesus being the one who bound him and is now plundering and taking back what belongs to himself. So he's saying that he did not perform these acts through Satan's power. Jesus performed these acts by rendering Satan powerless, by binding him. And then we come to a section that probably you had questions about when we were reading it. Jesus kindly warns the, uh, these visiting scribes about blasphemy. And he says, the, kind, the person who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. That person never has forgiveness. And so we come to this idea that some of us talk about is the unforgivable or the unpardonable sin. And some of us worry that maybe we have committed that. I knew a student years ago uh, that thought she had committed the unpardonable sin and that hung over her. No matter how many Christian events she went to, no, no matter any, uh, how many songs she sang, no, how much, no matter how much she read her Bible, no matter how much she believed in Jesus, she was afraid she had committed the unpardonable sin. So that's a big deal for people. You know, you, you said something in your youth, you said something in your, in your anger, and you thought maybe God can't forgive that. So what are we talking about? Well, it's fascinating as you read some of the literature on it, is the literature on it was, uh, it's not really saying there's one clear consensus. People are taking a stab at it because it doesn't just spell out what exactly is being talked about here. Um, maybe what he's talking about is talking to a Jewish audience on people who relied on the Old Testament sacrificial system to pay for their sins. And maybe he's saying there is no sacrifice for this particular sin. You, if you don't come to Jesus, there is no sacrifice for sin. So in that way, it would be a little bit like Hebrews 10, 26 to 27, which says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. So maybe it refers to that of the Old Testament sacrificial system and saying, there is, you know, you can sacrifice bulls and goats, but that's not going to take away sins. You could sacrifice a bull elephant, and that wouldn't take away the sin. You could sacrifice a whale, and that wouldn't take away. There's no sacrifice that can deal. You, there's no forgiveness. But some here think that it's referring to God removing a hand of grace upon them, his restraining hand, so that they give themselves over completely to the sin, and there's a hardness of heart. So that no matter how much they hear about Jesus, they become angrier and hardened to that. So, any of you done that? I don't know. But I want, you to, I want you to know this, right? Is if you feel remorse for any sin, for that sin, then you probably haven't committed that sin, right? A person who has truly committed this sin will never feel remorse for it. They will never see their need of forgiveness. They will, never, they will forever think they saw it right and everyone else saw it wrong. So there is no person who regrets that who's repentant for it, and is saying, please forgive me. Great example of that might be in Scripture, the Apostle Paul for us. is when he was younger, he thought about destroying the church of Jesus. He probably had sentiments a lot like these scribes. He was probably trained by these, stri these scribes. And yet, the Apostle Paul, when he met Jesus, repented and turned from his sin. He, he, and he repented of his self-righteousness and embraced Jesus. So if running, instead of saying, maybe I have committed this, Instead, running gladness to Jesus that he forgives even rash words spoken in ignorant pride. So the scribes misrepresented Jesus to self and the world because it threatened something they love. We love the power. 
And then we come to another group. They're far more uh, sympathetic towards Jesus. It's his family. And there's confusion, there's sympathetic confusion and denial. We, we read this about them in verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So this is his mother and his brothers. And as I was reading through this, and maybe you thought the same thing, it's like, does Mary not know? <laughs> I mean, she was there when Gabriel showed up and said, you're going to have this son born to you. She was there for the virgin birth. She was there to see all of these things. She saw the shepherds who came in and said, we just saw angels out in the field, a whole host of them singing praise to the newborn king. So did she not really understand this? And my guess is probably not. Because this is so far over the top of what she probably was expecting. Jesus claims the miracle. This was not what she expected. Probably she'd be like most of us, and she tried to normalize it in her head a little bit. Is you know, Jesus, he's going to be a good student. He's going to be the top of his class. He's going to go off to school someday. He's going to go to Messiah school, and he's going to get his Messiah masters. It's going to be fantastic, but it's, it's going to be very normal. And so when her son starts coming and making these claims, I'm sure she was confused by it. And don't you think his brothers were confused? It's like, we used to eat Cheerios and watch Sunday morning, uh, Saturday morning cartoons with this guy, and now he's... People are saying he's the Messiah and all these people are following him. We're really concerned about Jesus. So they did the same thing. Is, uh, they tried to make sense of him with their preconceived uh, ideas, pre-existing in the ancient world. It makes sense that to one group that Jesus is a demon. It makes sense to another group that Jesus is, you know, he's, he's having a moment. Uh, he's, he's, he's out of his mind. In the modern world, we tend to do the same thing. Right? If in the ancient world they thought of him as a lunatic or a liar, we tend to think of him as a legend. Right? There's, there are mythological elements to Jesus. We do that as modern people. Is, you know, it was something that people made up in the past. But there's an a, a atheist scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman, and uh, he had to say this about it. He said, the idea that Jesus did not exist is a modern notion. It has no ancient precedence. In other words, they all knew Jesus was real. He's always portrayed as real. It was made up in the 18th century, the idea that Jesus was a, was a myth or a legend. One might well call it a modern myth, the myth of the mythical Jesus, right? So even Bart Ehrman, who studies these things for a living, he wouldn't agree with what we're saying about it. He said Jesus was at least a real person, but he, he takes the route that many other people take and say, well, there was a real person, and it just got, a, it got blown out of proportion. You know, he wasn't the one who lost his mind. It was all of his followers who lost their minds, and they made him something that today would have Jesus cringing. But that's never what the scriptures say. That's never what any of the testimonies outside of it say. As we look, there's just too much history about Jesus and the claims that he made. And the reality is, like, in the, old, like the, the Pharisees and the scribes of old, we have something to defend. We have a lifestyle that we want to protect because if Jesus is who he says, it changes everything. It challenges everything. It, it really becomes disruptive and intrusive on the way that we live our lives. And so Lee Strobel, who wrote uh, Case for Christ, he, he issues a challenge for people like us. He said, people who have searched for Jesus through history have often discovered exactly who they want to find in the first place. 
liar, lunatic, lord, legend, whatever. And he asked the question, is it possible to find the real Jesus? That depends on how you answer a more foundational question. Are you willing to set aside your preconceptions and let the evidence take you wherever it will? And what about me? Am I willing to do the same? Right. So sometimes we find Jesus a bit too subversive. And so we want parts of him, aspects of him, but not the whole of him. Or we don't want him at all. But those we, in this passage, those we see willing to accept that he is as a subversive, uh, they also find him to be even far more redemptive. Far more redemptive. So there are two other people that are talked about in this passage. Disciples and apostles. The disciples right off the bat. Uh, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Now disciples and apostles are not synonymous. Disciples were followers, pupils. Apostles were authorized spokesmen for the administration, like the press secretary in the White House. She speaks on behalf of the whole White House, right? And so that's what, the, what an apostle was. Uh, they were the only ones chosen by Jesus to be apostles, to be spokespeople. So when, there are only 12 of them. So when, Jesus, when Judas died, they replaced him with a guy named Matthias. And then later, Paul was added to that number, so it looks like there was 13. And then later, there are a few others that are referenced as apostles. But the key was they had to be chosen by Jesus for the role. That's not something you applied for. You had to be chosen. And there are three other things that are spelled out here in this passage about the apostles. Number one is they were eyewitnesses. Chapter 3, verse 14, he says he chose them that they might be with him. So all of these men were eyewitnesses to these events. And uh, that was true of even the later ones who followed, like Matthias who replaced Judas. So in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, it says that we need to choose somebody. Somebody has to be chosen by Lot, by Jesus, who was there from the beginning, from John the Baptist all the way to seeing the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So all of the apostles were eyewitnesses. Paul says that he was one of normally born because he wasn't there during all of this, but he saw Jesus and was chosen by Jesus. So they're with him because they're eyewitnesses, and then they were also receiving deeper training, which is what we see in the next phrase, which is he sent them out to preach. So these were the ones who would pass on what Jesus said, and what they said, they're speaking on behalf of the kingdom as the, the authoritative spokespeople. They're authenticated to speak and chosen to be the only speakers uh, for the kingdom and, and bring new information. And chapter 3, verse 15, tells us why this is significant, is uh, or how we know that they were authenticated. He says, they have authority to cast out demons. So the apostles performed signs, wonders, and miracles as a verification that they were speaking on behalf of God. And in Acts chapter 2, in the first sermon that Peter preaches after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus points back to the miracles of Jesus and says he was authenticated by God. He was accredited to God before you. That's the purpose of signs, wonders, and miracles in the Bible, to demonstrate who is speaking for God. So disciples and apostles are not anonymous. The, these 12 apostles were disciples, but they were chosen from a, a larger pool of disciples and just these 12 pulled out. But the disciples, 
And this becomes significant for us because in Acts 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 26, it says that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So when you hear about the disciples in Scripture, if you claim that you're a Christian, it means that you're a disciple today. And those things that we look at them doing in the Scripture, he's calling us to be doing. So the, disciple mean, the word disciple means roughly student or learner. So unlike the crowds, the disciples didn't just come to Jesus to get their miracle and then go back home. They came and stayed and followed. They walked where he led, they lived as he instructed and accepted what he preached. And they built their lives on it. And this is very different from the response of the crowds. The disciples saw Jesus differently. They had a grid. If you were Jewish, you had a grid. Grid, you were thinking, could he be the prophet? Could he be the Messiah? But what they saw and they understood in Jesus was that he was the overflowing of the banks of their previous conceptions. It was overflowing. It was much bigger and deeper than they thought that it was going to be. So to them, Jesus was amazing. And they were willing to put away the conceptual box and say, that box isn't working. We need a bigger box to try to understand who Jesus is. And so they tried to adjust and they tried to follow him. Uh, They failed often and miserably, but they still tried to follow because they would only find out later who Jesus truly was, which we're given insight into that now. That's the first point, right? So what have we been dealing with? We've been dealing with what do people think about Jesus? That's the most important thing about you. But there's something else that C.S. Lewis says is even more important. So, A.W. Tozer, that quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. C.S. Lewis wrote this. I read in a periodical the other, I'm just kidding. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. So what does God think of you? What does God think of you? Now, if you're in Christ, he tells us. Verse 35, looking around at his disciples, uh, the apostles, others who are gathered around who are following him, He says, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And this is how Jesus sees those who believe. Now, he's got his blood relatives who are just outside, and he's saying that these people who are not my blood relatives, who are my followers, I have a deeper and more personal and binding relationship to them than I do to my blood relative family, right? He says that he feels deeper ties to you who are in Christ than he does to his human family. Think about family. There's identification with, attachment to, loyalty towards, affection for, commitment to, obligations towards, affinity towards. And he says he loves you who are in Christ with that kind of affection. So how do you get that? Well, he says here it's the will of God. You have to do the will of God. That's who he talks about in the very last verse Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And everybody, if you're thinking, if you're paying attention to your life, you're like, well, that excludes me, I guess. 
until you start to really wrestle with what is the will of God? What does the Bible say is the will of God concerning me? And Jesus doesn't tell us here. But I typically, I've been taught to think rules and laws and all of these other things. But that's only secondary. There's something that comes first. And we see that in John chapter 6, 39 to 40. Where Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing, none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So what's the will of the Father? That we look to Jesus alone, and that this Son, the only begotten Son, will bring us home. That's how you get into the family of God. To, to do his will is to believe. I come, I stay, I follow because I don't know where else to go. There is no else to go. It's just him. So now this is more than believing that Jesus died for sins, which is true. That's part of it. For, for me, for many of us, that was the open doors. Like that's where we first walked in. But I entered into, so he talks about here about believing in Jesus. I'm stepping into this relationship with Jesus. And what this means is I believe in the Jesus who disrupts my old life and steps in and brings something new. I believe in this Jesus who, yes, preached, but who also walked on water, who raised the dead back to life. I believe in the Jesus who changed water into wine, who healed paralysis, and who came back from the dead himself, who is seated at the Father's right hand, who is king and Lord over all things, and who will one day come and completely transform the world. I believe in that Jesus. But yeah, I believe he died for my sins, absolutely. But that just brings me into that. So when we talk about believing in Jesus, and Wally and I were having a conversation about this, is there's an aspect in which you say, I believe him. I trust him. When he speaks, I know what he says is true and dependable, and I believe him relationally. But there's also an aspect of believing in Jesus. So I, I was thinking about, how do, how do we think about this, this, this? I was thinking about this week. Is... Uh, to believe in Jesus means that I have now put my whole life within the context of who he is. So it's like going into the army. My whole life is now defined by the army. Or getting into marriage. My whole life is now defined, everything I do, this is the context for my life, I'm now married. Or getting into a family. I enter into this relationship with him and it changes everything. He is my family. It means I do life with him and through him and in him. So to, to be in the family is to do life within the context of that family. And what I want you to understand is this is true for you. But it's also true for Jesus. Is he's in our family, those who believe, He's in our family, and he makes decisions based on us and our benefit. So I was thinking about an illustration this week, and Rebecca reminded me of a story of a, a teacher we heard uh, several times. Um, her name is Paige Benton Brown. She does a lot of women's conferences. She's a fantastic speaker, so if you want to go find her online, you could do that. And uh, she tells a story of a family who is adopting a child from Russia, and so... This is obviously an older story. Right? So adopting a child from Russia, 
And uh, they had to go through all the paperwork. They had to pay exorbitant fees, all these kinds of things to adopt their new child. Was it a son? Do you remember? I don't remember. It's a son. We'll, go. we'll call him Sergei because that's the only Russian-sounding name I know. And uh, so he, Sergei, is in the orphanage, and it's the day. It's the day they get to take him home. And so they come to the orphanage. They're going to take Sergei home, and he refuses to leave because he has a bunkmate, and he can't bear to leave his bunkmate. So the whole time they're trying to talk Sergey into leaving. He's like, no, I will not leave my bunkmate behind. He is my, he is my friend. He's my brother. He has to go with me or I'm not going anywhere. So the family stayed an extra few weeks in Russia. They paid all of the exorbitant fees. They filled out all the paperwork. And they left that day with a second son. Both of them, now their children. Jesus is the first brother. He says, I'm not going anywhere without them. I'm not going anywhere without my people. I love them. This is what he's saying. This is whoever does the will of, my, of God, who, whoever believes, he is my brother and sister and mother. So this Jesus is for you. He's not going anywhere without you. And for you, you wonder if maybe you're not deserving of that. That's not the right question. Because you don't have to be an apostle for Jesus to love you and to be in his family. You don't have to be even a very good disciple or a very good person instead to see that Jesus himself is good and he is this gracious and he loves me. He's taken all of my sins on him because he's my elder brother and he has rescued me because I'm family and he did not want to go through eternity without you and me. And it also is true for anybody in here who's wondering whether Jesus could accept you. You feel like you're on the outside and you're looking in and you think, that sounds wonderful, but could Jesus accept me? And I think it's wonderful in this passage. The very last verse, he says, whoever, whoever. It's the person who's failed over and over and over it's the person who was afraid, maybe I, maybe I blasphemed God and I couldn't be accepted. It's for the person who's tried to do everything right, but it always falls apart. It's the person who tried to do everything right and they, they, they hold their lives together on the outside, but internally they're falling apart. It's for you and it's for me because Jesus is this good. So the question comes, maybe, maybe we need to combine both questions this way? So Tozer's question was, uh, he, he said, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. C.S. Lewis said, the most important thing about you is what God thinks of you. So let's combine them a little bit. The most important thing about you understanding Jesus is the most important thing about you is what you think God thinks about you. That makes all the difference in the world. He loves me. I'm convinced. Let's pray. I can remember being an insecure 14-year-old at a youth conference. 
and you coming to me and showing me that you could love someone like me. And not only that you could, but you did. And that made all the difference. And here I stand before a group of people talking about your grace and your love and about this passage. And I'm still the insecure person. But I've learned that you love people like me. Broken people who have nothing in themselves whereby they should be loved. But know that you're a God who loves deeply and you delight in me just as much as you ever have. And I pray for the people who are here today that they would see that same kind of love from you. They would experience it. It doesn't depend upon their work and their performance, but only upon Jesus and believing in him. I pray that you would show them your great love for them and that would be the changing point for their lives. Would you bless us and be with us as we sing this one last song. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.